you have your Bible, join me in Acts chapter 6. We'll be in Acts chapter 6 this morning. I'm glad that you are here. This will be our last Sunday in our series on grace that we've been looking at over the last several many weeks now. And so we have a little bit of ground to cover today, so I hope you're ready to stay engaged with me and to think through this. Let's review our principles on grace as we have looked at them over the last couple of months. The first thing we saw was grace cannot be earned. It is given. There is nothing we can do to earn the grace of God in our life. And the truth is, if anything is earned, then therefore it is either, you could call it a reward, it is a wage, it is something that is deserved. Grace, by definition, is the exact opposite. So whether it's from God, specifically as we're talking about here, or by us as individuals, grace cannot be earned, it is given. Second thing we looked at is grace is not reserved for good people. Grace underscores the goodness of God. And we're going to look at that a little bit more even this morning. At the end of the day, when God shows grace, it is because of who he is, not who we are. And then my favorite of the principles, number three, grace is never just enough. It is always far more than enough. And when we think Man, I just need a little bit of grace. And God gives, and he gives beyond and above. His grace is always far more than enough. Number four, grace is always there when you need it most. At those moments when you think, I just can't go on anymore, that's when grace is there, and it's all that we need at those moments. Then we looked at number five, how discipline is often an expression of grace and that in discipline God will be trying to pull us back towards him and so his grace in showing discipline is actually for our good and for our help six God looks for opportunities to extend grace it is something that for you and I it is not as if he is a begrudging giver in fact he gives liberally and the Lord is looking for opportunities to show his grace We saw that grace has no limit. It is not that there is an end. There is a place where we come to where grace has gone as far as it can go. As long as we're breathing, there is nothing, nothing the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover. Therefore, grace has no limit. Last week, we came to this thought. Grace, receiving grace, excuse me, is often easier than dispensing it. And I hope you had opportunity this week to, to trust that, uh, to, to rely on that statement, to come back to it and go, this person doesn't deserve grace this week. In, in this encounter, they don't deserve it. But receiving it is so much easier than dispensing it. Maybe we talked about how we as the church are so much more effective when the message of grace is more evident in our lives. And when we are living out that principle of giving grace, regardless of whether they deserve it or not, grace is never properly understood until it is experienced properly, then it can be shown properly. As we come to Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at our last two principles today. Begin in verse 1, if you will, with me in Acts chapter 6. 
And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So basically what you have here is you have the first church fight. So what has happened is there are now those who have a Greek background, those who have a Jewish background. They have gotten saved. They're beginning to walk with the Lord, and there's a conflict. All of a sudden, they feel like the widows of the Greeks are not being taken care of and treated as well as the widows there in the Jewish circles. Part of that has historical value in the sense that here a widow was defined as a widow indeed. So this would be a lady who had lost her husband, who was beyond marrying age in their culture, and who did not have a child to help take care of her. So there were these individual ladies who had a need, and the need came up. So here's how they dealt with the need. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. Now this is where we're going to focus on today. Look ye out among you seven men, honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And then it goes on to list the other ones in verse 6. And they set before the apostles. They prayed over them. And the word of God increased, verse 7. Now jump to verse 8 with me. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So here's Stephen. The man, when the church had a problem, they needed men to help solve this problem. They go and they look for seven men, and here one of the men that they choose is Stephen. And the Bible specifically tells us of him. He was a man full of the Holy Ghost. Before he had been chosen for this position, he was a man who showed the power of God in his life, and it was evident to people around him. By our definition... We would look at Stephen and say, Stephen was a spiritual man. Stephen was a good guy. So Stephen goes on, and the Lord continues to bless Stephen in his ministry. In fact, there in verse 8, it talks about how he now has the ability to do great wonders and miracles. Verse 9, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called of the synagogue of the Libertines, the Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Sicily, and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. So there are those outside of the church that are now arguing with Stephen because Stephen has become a representative of the church. He's become a leader in the church. He's doing miracles. He's got great power when he speaks, so much so that we see in verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, The man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that the Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sought in the council, looking steadfastly on him, on Stephen, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. 
Stephen's here. He's been brought in. He's now being lied about. They've got a kangaroo court after him. They are seeking to discredit him. And as they listen to him, they're not able to resist the wisdom by which he's speaking. They look at him and they see him as an angel. When you look at Stephen, whether you believe in Jesus or not at this moment in history, when you look at Stephen, you look at a man and you go, that guy, he's godly. There, there's something about him that's different than the rest of us. That guy, wow, he's a spiritual man. There's a man who God's going to show grace to. I, I mean, that guy, he deserves grace. Now, the truth of the matter is, had Stephen experienced grace at this point in his life? Absolutely. Uh, Stephen was one who had accepted Christ. He was obviously a believer in Jesus. He had been saved. He's on his way to heaven, as we're going to see here in just a little bit. Here's a man who, without a doubt, had experienced grace in his life. But over the next few hours... Is he going to experience grace? Let's go to the end of chapter 7. Verse 54, chapter 7, here in Acts. Stephen goes on, he preaches to them a great message. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. They are so mad at him, they begin to chew on him. But he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one cord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, as we unwrap that for just a minute, I want you to think of the scene that's taking place. The people who have heard Stephen's message are so angry, they attack him. When he looks up to heaven, he sees God. And when he declares that he sees God, they take him outside of the city. Now, when they take him outside of the city, this was common in the Jewish day, to take him out there for the purpose of executing him, for the death sentence. They're going to go out there. They're going to put him down below, generally in some type of a pit. They're going to pick up large boulders, and they're going to throw them down on him and stone him to death. We see this happen other places in Scripture. In fact, we know of two other instances in the New Testament when this same type process begins to take place. One of them is with Jesus himself. They take Jesus out to a cliff, and they go to stone Jesus. At that moment, when Joe, Jesus excuse me, is about to be stoned, what happens? Well, there's a confusion that occurs, and the Bible tells us that Jesus just kind of walks through the midst of them and escapes. Now, at that, you go, man, 
That's God showing Jesus grace right there. I mean, he just walked right out of that. Maybe that's what he's going to do for Stephen. You know, they, they've chewed on him already, but, but he's out here now, and before they stone him, maybe God's just going to like give him all blindness, and Stephen can just walk out, because Stephen, he's a man full of the Holy Ghost. He's a godly man. Surely God's going to show him grace and let him escape. Now, later on, Paul goes through the same process. Paul is actually stoned. And when Paul is stoned and they come, they cast all the stones on him. What happens to Paul? After they're done, Paul gets up and he walks away. Now, I'm sure he had to be a little sore after the fact. I don't know. But, but Paul is stoned and he gets up and he walks away from it. So we look at it and go, well, man, now that's great. That's just God being good. Here's a guy who they thought they had killed, but they couldn't even kill him. He just gets up and walks away. But God doesn't do that for Stephen. You see, Jesus escapes because his time was not done. Paul comes back, and Paul himself thought he may have been raised from the dead. Again, his time wasn't done. But Stephen, who had just gotten started... Stephen's ministry was just underway. Stephen, who was just coming to the forefront. Stephen that day dies. And we look at that and go, but, but if God could spare Jesus and spare Paul, why didn't he spare Stephen? And we begin to get ideas about God. But here's something you have to understand. And you have to get a hold of Grace isn't fair. You go, but, but Jesus experienced grace that Stephen didn't get. That's not fair. But it's Jesus, so we understand that. And then we go, but, but Stephen didn't get the grace that Paul got. That's true. Now think of it in a different light. Think of it in light of Barnabas. Excuse me, Barabbas. Think of it in light of Barabbas. Barabbas is in jail for murder. Jesus is to be crucified, and they say, give us, free somebody to us. We want Barabbas. And Barabbas escapes free. He doesn't get executed, and he's a murderer. You go, but Barabbas deserved to die. Stephen didn't. Why did Barabbas get freed, and Stephen had to die from being stoned? That's not fair. It's not fair. Okay, but, but, let, let's go in fairness, let's look at the end of the passage. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, when he fell asleep, what happens? Verse 59, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knows that at the moment his breath is gone, he's in heaven. And, and you look at that and you go, oh man. Now, what happened on earth, that might not have been fair. But here was a godly guy. And when he died, he got to go to heaven. That's grace. Take your Bible. Turn to Luke 23. Now, the truth is, that's absolutely 100% grace. Stephen knew it. He joyed in it. But yet, sometime here on earth, we still get 
to the place to where we don't see grace the way that grace is. Because we deal in fair. And we start when we're kids and we want fair. But grace isn't always fair. Look, if you will, verse 32. In verse 32, we see, And there were also two other malefactors led with him, that's with Jesus, to be put to death. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, the one on the right hand and the one on the left. Now, before we go any further, here are the two men on each side of the cross with Jesus. Historically, what you have to know is that the Roman Empire at this point is very much in control. As the Roman Empire is spreading around the world and trying to continue to exert its dominance on the world, it has to send ships across the seas. And oftentimes, those ships were man-powered ships. They had rowers in the bottom of the ship, and those men had nothing to do all day but to row the ship to power it to its destination where it needed to go. It was hard to find volunteers for this job. So most times what happened is those that were rowing the ship were actually serving their prison sentence. So for individuals that were cast into jail that were of a sort that they could then put into the rowing, they would send them on a ship and they would be assigned to become a rower. As Rome expanded, it needed more and more of these rowers. So it was very, very common for someone who was in jail for a crime, even what we would call a capital offense, to be put down here on a rowing ship. However, when someone was at a place to where they were so rebellious, they weren't just a zealot maybe against Rome, but they were so violent, they were so unworkable that they couldn't be a rower, then they got sentenced to death. The Romans loved to send people to the ship. They didn't necessarily love sending them to the cross. They couldn't get any benefit out of them. But here are these two men on the cross. These are obviously bad guys. Stephen, obviously a good guy. You need somebody to help widows? Stephen's your guy. You need somebody to die on a cross? This is your guy. He's, a, he's not even worthy of rowing a ship. All right, jump back in uh, Luke 23, verse 39 with me. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Now, it's obvious this malefactor has no intent on this being an earthly kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today... Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Stephen was obviously a good guy. Stephen dying says, receive my spirit. And Jesus says, come on up. The malefactor was obviously a bad guy. He's dying on the cross. He deserves it. He looks at him and he says, remember me. Jesus says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Here's the great thing. Grace isn't fair. 
he deserved grace. He didn't deserve grace. You see, it is true that grace isn't fair. But forgive it's poor English, I know, but it's fairer than fair. Grace is fairer than fair because grace is grace. You see, fair has to be on somebody's equity system. Grace doesn't have to be on anybody's equity system. Grace is God's goodness. So grace looks at Jesus and says, your job's not done. Just walk through the crowd. Grace looks at Paul and says, Paul, you need to go through this for my glory, but I'm going to bring you up and out of it. Stephen, just come on home. Just come on. You're done. You're good. Come on home. We look at the criminal on the cross and says, grace would be like, okay, you believe in me? I'm going to let you go, but you're going to have to prove that you really love me. Because anybody hanging on a cross can say, I need God now. And Jesus looks at him and says, today, just like Stephen came up into my presence, today you're going to be with me in the glory of eternity. Because grace isn't fair. It's fairer than fair. Because fair would set some kind of equity on it. But it's not there. You see, here's why grace is fairer than fair. Because everyone, everybody is invited. Every individual who has ever walked the face of the earth. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all, all should come to repentance. When Jesus died on the cross... He didn't die for a few. He died for everyone. And therefore, everyone is invited. If I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Now, look, in the original language, that word all, it, it, it has a very unique meaning. It means all. It, it, it is not a word that means only those that I choose will I all. No, it, it, it's all. And he draws all. Everyone, everybody is invited. That's fairer than fair. Because fair would say, well, you deserve to be invited. You don't. Eh, your life, you probably are on the passing side of the bell curve of life. So you might be at a 67%, but we're, we're still going to put you passing. So you're invited. No, no, no. Everybody is invited. And here's the great thing. Everybody gets in the same way. Stephen, how did you get to go to heaven? Because you were stoned to death? No, because Jesus Christ died for me. Abraham, Abraham, you're you're the first one. This is kind of where this all begins, going back where grace is not earned, it's given. Abraham, how did you get to heaven? Because he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Criminal on the cross, how do you get to go to heaven? Because he's God. Don't you get it? He's God. Everybody goes the same way. And today, look, you and I, we all go the same way. Do you realize that every religious system in the world has do's and don'ts? They have things that you have to keep, principles, commandments, whatever you want to call them, rules. They have guidelines for life. They recognize that these principles need to be true in order for you to be a good person. And then they also recognize that no matter what it is, you can't keep all of them. And yet Christianity is the simplest, 
belief system and the fact that everybody gets there the same way. Because we all fail and we all come through Jesus Christ. The great thing is everybody can meet the requirements. Everybody can meet the requirements. It's not that I have to be anything. Because grace does not underscore my goodness. It shows the goodness of God. So with Stephen, grace isn't fair in the sense that he had to die when others lived. But he's in heaven because of grace. The criminal on the cross, he goes through life as a terrible person and at the last possible minute, he accepts Christ. You go, well, that's not fair. He didn't live for him. Yes, and there is the joy of fellowship with God that he never knew on this earth. But today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Why? Because grace isn't fair. It's, it's fairer than fair. It's more than that. Because grace is grace. It's not about being fair. Take your Bible. Turn over to Acts chapter 15. When grace becomes available to everyone, and grace is something that underscores the goodness of God. We have to understand, and we have to work towards this end. And this is why we finish up with this point in our study on grace. When it comes to grace, you have to remember what grace is. Because grace plus anything is anything but grace. Are you with me? Grace plus anything is anything but grace. And the reason that's so important is because as those who have received grace this morning, if you're here and you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you were invited like everybody else, and you came to Christ through the blood of Jesus himself like everybody else, and you met the requirement like anybody else who's going to heaven, you understand that that's just grace. And yet, as a group of people who know grace, if we're not careful, we begin to add things to grace. Now, that is no condemnation on anyone. It's just human nature. Because when we can add to it, we begin to feel better about ourselves. We've been looking at this in the book of Galatians on Wednesday nights. There's this constant push to add to grace. But grace plus anything is anything but grace. Look, if you will, here in Acts chapter 15, verse 9. As the church is beginning to grow and things have happened with Stephen and everything's beginning to move forward. Peter deals with this. And in verse 9, he says, It put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. That's, that's the same way all of us come through grace. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God? To put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Even as they. It is through Jesus Christ and that grace that we are saved. Therefore, don't add this yoke. Don't add this burden. Don't add anything to grace. Because grace plus anything is anything but grace. Now look, I, I want to take just a minute. I want you to think through this. The local church, we use an expression. We call it our church family. 
And because of that, a church family can begin to model our personal family. So those family things, forgive me. So this is true in your family, and therefore it can become true in a church family. The local church has a way of becoming a graceless place. And the reason is because your family has a way of becoming a graceless place. Think about this. You go to a restaurant, and if you have been taught any kind of manners in your life, you go to a restaurant, you pay for the privilege of eating in that restaurant, you are paying for the service at that restaurant, and then you go beyond that, you give additional money to pay for that person to serve you. And yet, if you have any kind of manners, what do you say to that person when they bring you your food? What do you say? Thank you. Okay. When was the last time you sat down at your dinner table at your house and said thank you? Now, for some of you, your mama beat that into you, and that's a good thing. Um, you, you learn that early on. But for most of us, we sit down and we eat, and we eat what's on the table. And most of the time, we are more likely to make a snide comment about something than we are to say thank you about something. And it's because we just tend to lose grace in the familiarity of our home. Now, when that comes into a bigger gathering of family, then the church can become a place that lacks grace. When you begin to think about it, just think for a minute about the, the condition of churches in the world, especially in America today. We would look at it and say, especially if you've grown up in church for years, it, you would say, man, the church just isn't what it used to be. People aren't committed anymore like they used to be to the church, to God's house. Now, let me ask you, are people less committed today than they were 50 years ago to church? Yes or no? Yes, a, a couple of you are tentatively, yes, yes. We could argue, and, and statistics would show that, that people are less committed to the church today than they were 50 years ago. Let's make that a broader question. Are people less committed today than they were 50 years ago? Okay, we, we say yes. Let me ask you, is that true? How many of you got one of these? How many of you are pretty committed to it? Like as in you've looked at it 87 times today. How many of you have pretended like you were reading your Bible on it during church? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. Look, is it not true that we are committed to what we want to be committed to? I have an Apple phone. I have an Apple watch. I have a Mac computer. I have a Mac book. And I have an iPad. They've got me. I'm committed. I'm in. People aren't less committed today than they used to be. They're just less committed to the church. So why is it that people are less committed to the church? Has the grace of God lost its value? The answer to that is no. Has the grace of God become bad news? The answer to that is no. But yet the church has become bad news to some people. And why is that? Well, it's because the church has lost its grace. 
and it starts off, now, now please, this is more of a communication, me talking to you as in a family, than it is a preaching point this morning. This happens subtly. And it happens when the family stops showing grace inside the family. And so we have to be careful to show grace, not just to somebody who walks in who we don't know, but to each other. Now, I'm not sitting up here and saying, hey, look, we lack grace as a church. I don't think that's the case at all. But I think all of us need to be reminded of it. In my house, we have a good family relation in my house. And yet, we need to be reminded to be more graceful towards each other. So as a church family, here's what happens. And again, this is just more of, let me give you an illustration so that you understand it and see how it can affect. In the local church, people come and changes happen. And when changes happen in a church, something different is done. Someone sees it and they go, oh, I don't like that. Husbands, have you ever made that statement to your wife? Oh, that's ugly. Yeah, that doesn't go well, okay? Just so you know, that, that doesn't work out well for you. But there are things that happen, and so we make comments about them. Or, here, here's what tends to happen. We get upset about it, and then we tend to say, okay, what's happening there no longer matches what I want. And so, therefore, I will go somewhere else. And so we go to a different church until we find a church that makes what I want. Now, please, this is different than there's a doctrinal situation or there is a lack of spiritual growth. I think those are two different things, and please, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about this is a preference thing. We had a missions conference one time, and we put up flags from all the countries around the world. I had an individual come to me, and they were very angry that one of the flags had is, um, Arabic writing on it. He goes, I think that represents Islam. Do they need Jesus there too? I mean, so it's just, it got very upset about that flag because it has Arabic writing on it. All right. So people get upset about things that make a preference, and then they say, okay, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go somewhere else. Now, at that transition moment, here's what happens. That individual is probably, all things being equal, someone who's grown up going to church. And so they know, I just got to go to another church. So they go and they find another church that meets their preferences. Until that church doesn't meet their preferences. And then, again, because they grew up going to church, they know they're supposed to go. They go and they find another church that now meets their preferences. And so on and so on and so on. And they go through life doing that. Here's what happens. Their kids grow up learning. If it doesn't match my preference, I'll just go somewhere else. But eventually what happens? They run out of places that match their preference. Then that individual says, well, I can't invite my neighbor because my church isn't going to match their preferences. And so now they don't invite them. And what they do is they teach their unchurched or unbelieving neighbor that if a church doesn't match your preferences, then you just keep going until you find one you agree with. And when that unbeliever goes, well, I can't find one I agree with, so I just won't go. And that's the process that happens. It's exactly the same thing that happens in your home. 
My mom and dad, they stayed together for 70 years, but man, they fuss and fought the whole time. I don't want that. So maybe they get married, maybe they don't. But they get married, they start fussing and fighting, and instead of figuring out how to fix it, they go, I don't want that. I'm going to go find another one. They go look for a different preference. And then they go look for a different preference. Sooner or later, you have to recognize, i got to show some grace here. And when mom and dad show grace towards each other, and mom and dad show, show grace towards the kids, man, the family works. It just works great. When the church shows grace to each other, man, the church works. It works great. When people see a family that is happy, when a family that's right, in today's world, they stand back in awe of that family. They go, I don't know how you do that. When people see a church where grace is shown in the church and it works, they go, man, I don't see how that works. I don't, I don't know why that works. I heard somebody say once, man, I used to hate it. Our church business meetings, I mean, there'd be people like arguing and about to fight. And, but that was kind of exciting. I was a teenager. And they said, but then everybody kind of stopped fighting about things and they all started getting along. And man, they got so boring. Let me just tell you, I am grateful we have very boring business meetings. <laughs> the, the most exciting thing we have in business meetings is my own personal challenge to try and get them done in under 10 minutes, okay? That, that's about as exciting as they get. Look, grace plus anything else is anything but grace. So when a church starts lacking grace, they stop showing it to each other. Then they stop showing it to people coming in. And people walk in the door and you go, man, you don't look like me. Therefore, you're different than me. Therefore, I'm not going to show you any grace. Isn't that a shame? But it happens. It, it, and some of you could tell stories about it. And it's heartbreaking. Because then when we lose that grace... We begin to make it hard for people to come to God. Jesus got angry when people made it hard for people to come to God. Peter says, look, stop. Stop adding a yoke. Don't make it hard for people to come to God to do something you can't do yourself. As a church, oh, let it be that we never make it difficult for people that are turning back to God. Wouldn't you love to have made it difficult for the criminal on the cross that day? He deserved for it to be hard. And yet, it was so simple. <coughs> Why? Because that's grace. Grace plus anything is anything but grace. Hey, this morning, here's what I want to do. We're going to do a little bit different. We're not going to have a, a, an invitation like we would normally have. We're going to take just a minute, and we're going to pray. And I want you to pray a couple of things. I want you to pray, God... Am I showing grace? Am I showing grace the way that I should? Have I made it so that grace is part of my life? It is coming out in my life? I'm dispensing it easily. And I'm not judging on fear. I'm just showing grace. And then secondly, what have I added to grace? I promise you, I promise you, it's human nature. All of us have something we have added to grace in our life. 
What if you added to grace? So I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, am I showing grace? Or am I trying to live on this fairness plane? And God, what have I added to grace? There's something in your life that you've been taught was a requirement for godliness. And it's nowhere in scripture. And you've made it a requirement before you give grace. Confess that to the Lord. You've heard the message. Now I hope you'll respond to it. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's the time to bow your head and ask Him to save you. In John 6:37, Jesus tells us that He will not cast out anyone who calls upon Him. I hope that you will call on Him today. If you need help spiritually, we'd love to be of service to you. Leave us a message, would you? At hbcga.org or 770-974-9091. Our service times are 1045 on Sunday morning, 930 for Sunday school, 5 o'clock for the evening service, and then 7 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Our services are warm and welcoming, and you will feel right at home. Come and visit us here at Harvest, and call on us if you need us. God bless you.